0: Great to be with you. Um, we have been going through a lengthy investigation of the Gospel of Matthew, kind of bouncing around in the book, asking what it has to say about the church, particularly about the local church, about in town, about who we are, why we exist, what are we all about, and we've been calling that the ABCs of in town. Uh, and when I was planning this series back in the winter, this was the sermon that I was most excited about. But it's also probably the most uh, one that I fear the most as well. I'm worried that afterwards that everyone's going to be mad at me. So, because I think that I'm going to step on everyone's toes a little bit here, including my own, and maybe nudge in town in a direction that's a little bit challenging and maybe a little bit uncomfortable. And as I was preparing and reading this passage, I realized that it really sets up this episode of the Canaanite woman So well, that I wanted to add that to our reading. So this is Matthew, our gospel reading, and we're going to read down to uh, verse 28, though you don't have the last eight verses in the bulletin. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, "'Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat.' Jesus replied, "'And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition?' For God said, "'Honor your father and mother.'" And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, "'Listen and understand. What goes into your mouth does not defile you, but what comes out of your mouth, that is what defiles you.' Then the disciples came to him and asked, "'Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this?' He replied, "'Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides.'" If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart and these defile you? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile you, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile you. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away "'For she she keeps crying out after us.' "'He answered, "'I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel.' "'The woman came and knelt before him. "'Lord, help me,' she said. "'He replied, "'It is not right to take the children's bread "'and toss it to the dogs.' "'Yes, it is, Lord,' she said. "'Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table.' "'Then Jesus said to her, "'Woman, you have great faith. "'Your request is granted.' And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would guide us, that you would pour out your grace upon us. Many of us woke up this morning, and we had so many questions circling in our minds. We walked in here with anxieties and worries that we can't turn off, harboring confusion about who we are, about where we're going. Doubts about whether we'll ever be the person that we want to be or you want us to be. Some of us here are hurting deep inside. We feel abandoned. We feel like leftovers. And we need to sense uh, the presence of your grace. Though we may not fully be ready for your response, all of us have questions and we need answers. Would you let us sense somehow that you can be trusted and that you want our good and that You want us to find in all of our questions and concerns to find You. Whether for the first time this morning or as one more step in a lifelong quest, let us open ourselves up to Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, we looked at a passage, and the name of the sermon was The Decline and Fall of Christendom, that not only is Christianity not the dominant social force that it once was, that it's often the target of suspicion, whereas people used to swear on the Bible. Now there's a question of whether the Bible is even a moral document at all, whether the God of the Bible is someone to be worshipped and someone to be loved. And we've seen a rapid decline of individual denominations and churches and an incredible pace of social change that's forcing the church to ask questions that it long considered settled so, we've been talking about a church that exists in that context and the tension that exists between a church that wants to be rooted and historically orthodox and respectful of tradition, that we're not making this up as we go along, but that we have spiritual fathers and mothers and those shoulders that we stand upon. Yet we can't keep doing church the same way that we've always done church and expect to survive. There's a need for great change, for contextualization, for reform renewal. And all of these words are good, change and continuity, innovation and tradition, reformed and reforming. But as in politics, we're often asked to choose between the competing sides. But for the church, the danger is in doing one and not the other. You see, there's a danger in conservation just for conservation's sake. This becomes an ideology that stands above the Bible and makes demands upon Scripture. You see, there's a difference in being conservative and conservatism. And in the same way, there's an opposite danger of just change for change's sake, the denial of rootedness where we stand above and over our mothers and fathers beyond us or before us. And instead of being liberal, that is open to positive change, we become liberals and liberalism sets in. And so you see these two isms that exist above the gospel in the church, and we are normally taught to fear only one as Christians. We're normally taught to fear innovation, change, liberalism. But actually both isms can obscure God's Word. Conservatism can deaden its voice, where the church can't possibly speak to new situations, and the church becomes ingrown and self-serving and self-perpetuating. And the other creates a situation where everything's up for grabs. The church loses its churchiness, its connection with the vitality and the truth of the gospel. So, last week we talked about how important it is to value conservation without conservatism, of being rooted deeply in a specific tradition and benefiting from the resources and the fateful exegesis of Scripture that's gone on before us. We talked about giving ancestors a vote, what G.K. Chesterton called the democracy of the dead. And so I want you to keep that in mind as I begin to push in the opposite direction to realize that I'm not fully shifting the pendulum all the way to the other side. Tradition does get a vote, but not a veto. That we're reformed, and that's important, but also reform mean and open to change. Now, we see this tension in our passage in Matthew that we just read because Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees. These are the ultimate conservatives over the practice of his disciples not washing their hands before a meal. And this seems like sort of a silly debate, but we need to realize that many of our debates are going to seem silly to our grandchildren just a few years from now. Back then, this was serious business. And the Pharisees, if you notice in the text, didn't just happen upon Jesus. This wasn't just a a circumstance where they, they ran into each other. They actually traveled to confront Jesus. It was that important. You see, this practice had developed over centuries. And Jesus, before Jesus came on the scene, this ritualistic washing, in order to actually honor the Bible, to honor the Old Testament. And it wasn't done for hygienic purposes, but for religious, to be ritually clean, to honor God before a meal sort of our prayer before a meal on steroids. This was trying to say, before I eat, I want to make sure that people know that I honor God above all things, and I honor His Word. It was to be ritually clean, to show how serious they were about Scripture. So Jesus was breaking what we could say tradition, or what they would probably say the precious heritage of their ancestors. He was thumbing their nose at it. And they considered him the ultimate, unacceptable liberal. This would be like the the president of of Liberty University taking a thumbs-up picture with Bernie Sanders. The board of trustees would be all over him. That's not who we are. That's unacceptable behavior. But you see, Jesus is being liberal in a sense that is very unfamiliar to us. Because he's actually trying to protect the integrity of the Bible. He's actually to, trying to defend its original meaning. He's accusing the Bible defenders of being liberals because they're adding to Scripture. The Bible defenders are the actual Bible breakers. Now, Word must not have gotten along, or they must not have heard the song that you don't pull on Superman's cape and you don't spit in the wind. And you don't pull the mask off the Old Ranger, and you don't challenge Jesus to a Bible debate. Because he's going to win every time, and you're going to come off looking like a dummy. They say he's breaking tradition, and what does he say? Well, you are parent abusers. Ouch. That couldn't have felt very good. These people guarded their ritual purity while violating one of the most fundamental social commands in all of Scripture, that is care for one's neighbor, or in this circumstance, care for their parents, their closest neighbors. Now, this is a very complicated accusation. We don't have time to go into all of it, but let me just try and summarize, because in the ancient world, the care for one's parents was irrevocable. That was a test of manhood. If you didn't care for your parents, you were worse than an infidel. And this was a duty, but here these people are getting around that duty by devoting their money and their property to God, sort of putting it in escrow to where the parents could not access it. And so when a parent had a need, they would say, well, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, but this money is actually devoted to God. And so they took something that was incredibly spiritual, incredibly honorable, that is giving something to God, But their intention was actually to keep it for themselves and to prevent themselves from taking care of their parents in old age. And Jesus calls them on it. Their religious practices were detailed and exacting and demanding and fraudulent. They had put their rules above caring for people. And it takes a reformer, it takes a radical to call them on it. You see, to the conservatives, he's a liberal but he's a liberal in a way that captures, that recaptures the true intent of Scripture. And what Jesus says, we see both continuity and discontinuity with tradition. Continuity because we see that Jesus is committed to the deeper truth of what the tradition was meant to do. He was committed to the deeper deeper meaning of the text, a heart that was devoted to God and to neighbor, Verse 10 he says, he called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. What he's saying is that the source of real uncleanness is to be found not in that which passes through the body, but in those qualities which actually lodge in the heart. But that's Scripture's real intent, is to get to the heart. It's not just to set up a bunch of legalistic rules in order to look clean but it is to be clean. Verse 18, But the things that come out of the person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. You see, Jesus is not attacking tradition or ritual as such, but severing the practice from its essence. So there's continuity with tradition. There's continuity, actually, with the Scriptures that Jesus is trying to point these people back to Scripture's true intent. But there's also discontinuity, because as we saw last week, he comes on the scene preaching a whole new kingdom, that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes in a way that no one would have expected. And with his coming, all of the old ways of being set apart, of us and them thinking, of Jew and Gentile fall completely away. And so this distinction of being ritually clean is no longer important. Now, it's difficult to grasp how huge this was and how revolutionary this was, and that's why we read Acts chapter 10, because decades later, Peter, the apostle, is still trying to work through this. He gets this vision from God that he's to go to eat with Cornelius, a Gentile, and he says, come on, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. Certainly, that's not what you want, and oh, it was. And he goes, and he has this epiphany that Gentiles actually are brought into the kingdom. They belong. And then we looked at the whole book of Galatians, which is founded upon Paul extrapolating on that particular idea, a whole book decades later. And then we see the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15, where the apostles and teachers and major people, leaders from all around the church, the world at that time, come together and say, finally, okay, we relent, we'll let the Gentiles in once and for all. This was a huge, revolutionary, new, liberal idea. The early church had a series of what philosopher Alistair MacIntyre calls epistemological crises. And what he means by this is these are when incoherent or insufficient features of a system become apparent when they're confronted with a new reality or unexpected situations where long-held beliefs or traditions don't prove to have adequate resources to deal with the new situation or new environment or new questions. South African theologian Robert Voslow uses McIntyre's writings to reflect upon the South African, uh, South African church's response to apartheid. And in South Africa, the church is largely Dutch-reformed, and he says that along Uh, While they were debating apartheid, there were theologians who critiqued and supported apartheid, both claiming the Reformed tradition and to be the true heirs of the Reformed heritage. And what Voslo notices is that it wasn't a radical new school of thought or insight that broke the stranglehold. It was actually an ability to go back to Scripture and to mine a deeper seam. What ultimately won the day wasn't anything novel or supplemental, but it was a fuller appropriation of the more foundational themes of Scripture in a new context. Are you following me? This is sort of high-level stuff, but I hope that it's going to land soon. What they were doing is they were applying tradition in a new way. They were historically orthodox and yet also at the same time willing to embrace change, They were reformed and reforming, and they didn't see these two things as diametrically opposed, but that they worked in cooperation, and that a healthy church was both, not either-or. You see, they had the conservative insight of mining tradition, the resources that they already had, rather than inventing something new, yet they had this liberal tolerance for change, institutional change, where they were willing to say, no, this is wrong, And apartheid will not stand because of what Scripture says. And the church must be on the side of equality and the abolition of segregation. We see this in the early church. The same thing was happening where the passages that spoke, and there are those throughout Scripture, these passages that spoke of radical racial separation had to be renegotiated in light of Jesus. Suddenly, these overlooked or minimized passages became more prominent. Something new that was there the whole time, you see. It was easy to cling to these exclusionary passages until Jesus came and befriended outsiders and had meals. And Peter went and ate with Cornelius. And Jesus welcomed the Canaanite woman and healed her child. And when that happened, the church said, Aha! It's been there the whole time. You see, they begin to be able to see the underlying moral logic of the Scriptures and not just simply taking isolated text and trying to aggregate them to win against the other person. You see, conservatives could see what conservatism couldn't, and liberals could see what liberalism couldn't. And we see this thing happening throughout church history. We see the Reformation where reformers like Huss and Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin, they weren't radicals. They, were try, they weren't trying to start something new. Their insights were actually very, very old. They went back to tradition and mined a deeper seam, but they were open to change and to reform. So now let's talk about the ABCs of N-Town. How are we reformed and reforming? If you're new here, if you're not familiar with Presbyterianism or the Reformed tradition, the idea or the concept of Reformed is not a self-congratulatory title that we say, we are the Reformed people, we've figured it all out. But it's a tradition within Christianity that finds its most significant theological linkage to the Reformation's emphasis on the supreme authority of the Bible, of the sovereignty and power and goodness of God, of the priesthood of all believers, that you don't have to study the Bible under a, a cleric, but you can study it and open the Scriptures for yourself. Salvation by the radical grace of God and the extravagant welcome of all sinners. These are reformed principles, and they're important to our identity. But reforming also because we realize that we've been witness, witnesses to a Copernican revolution of social change in the last five to ten years. And some of our most cherished foundational documents are centuries old, written in a context that is completely foreign to what we're dealing with as a church today. They were written by educated white males in a feudal, monarchical, hierarchical, North Atlantic context. And there's richness to be mined there, but it's also different because suddenly the church finds itself doing ministry in an ethnically diverse, multinational, egalitarian, pluralistic, postmodern situation. So will it work to simply continue to just restate old formulations? These confessional documents were written in a context where the struggles were not with those types of ideas. The struggles were between them and the Anabaptists and them and the Catholics, and that's not the situation today. The Bible, you see, if it's even given a seat at the table of moral voices at all, is one voice among many. And because it appears to speak against homosexual practice, it's looked upon more and more as a relic, as regressive. But if these challenges, you see, were just external, if it was just the people outside the church that were asking these questions, perhaps we could put our fingers in our ears and say, yeah, 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 and not listen. And we could just continue to restate the things that we've said from the very beginning. But the problem is that the questions aren't coming just from outside, they're coming from inside, from you and I and from our children. The questions are coming from the church. What do I do with the Bible that condemns my closest friend who is gay? Can I worship a God who commands his people to eradicate another nation? What do I do when I read historical accounts in the Bible that seem to be contradictory How do I reconcile these texts of terror with the teachings of Jesus? What about evolutionary biology and modern astronomy that seem to undermine the history and cosmology of the Bible? If you're not asking these questions, your kids will, I promise you. And will we have the answers to help them? It's not just the outside world. And oh, by the way, if it was, this is the world that is made up of God's image bearers that we're called to minister to and bring the gospel to. How do we not only engage these questions, but reach out to those who are asking them? Dearman McCullough, who wrote sort of the definitive, authoritative uh, history of the Reformation about a decade ago, he says this, and I think it's a great idea or a great image. He says, self-styled traditionalists often forget that the nature of tradition is not that of a humanly manufactured mechanical or architectural structure with a constant outline and form, but rather that of a plant pulsing with life, continually changing shape while at the same time keeping its same ultimate identity. What a beautiful image, that of a church that's pulsing with life, and it's responding to its environment and changing, but only changing within its own DNA structure. It's rooted, you see. Not conservative re-entrenchment, resistance to change, resistant to change, nor is it liberal demolition of the entire system, but it's continuity and change. The church is a plant that is growing and flowering, but it can't and shouldn't escape its own DNA and become something different entirely. Okay, so let's try and bring this home a little bit more, application time, and we'll wrap up here. A couple of principles. When reformation stops, deformation sets in. You see, we are all in the position, in terms of the Bible, to know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, that we can read from. Genesis to Revelation, and we can see how it all fits together and we can systematize it, but the story inside the Bible is actually quite evolutionary and revolutionary. There are new insights along the way that people that came before and earlier in the Scriptures have to say, Whoa, wait, what? Now this is happening? You see, we can look back on it as a whole, but in the pages of Scripture, you see that truth is taking shape in a story. Now, we don't have new revelation coming, but the world, the environment that we live in is evolutionary. There are new situations and contexts that are constantly emerging, emerging, and so we've got to learn how to continue to appropriate the historical, revolutionary truths of the gospel for new situations and circumstances. We've got to figure out how to honor tradition and historical orthodoxy without becoming ingrown or fossilized and self-protective. So when Reformation stops, deformation sets in. Secondly, reassertion, that is just simply reasserting the things that we've always said over and over into new situations. Reassertion is reactive while Reformation is proactive. Much of the contemporary church, especially reform branches, are known not for being always reforming, but always reacting. The church is often caught on its heels during dealing with social change around it. And so I'm wondering, and I don't have all the answers, I need you guys to help can in town be a church that's actively exegeting the surrounding culture and seeking to creatively bring the gospel to bear upon the questions and upon the needs and the burdens of our friends and neighbors in ways that they will understand rather than simply just putting the fingers in our ears and reacting or hiding. Reassertion is reactive while Reformation is proactive. Third, reassertion locks us into the past. Reformation connects us with the present. Reassertion locks us into the past. Reformation connects us with the present. And what I mean by this is that there is no golden age where the church had it all together that we just simply need to go back to and say, if we could just be like the Reformers, if we could just be like the church fathers, if we could just be like the apostles, no, the church has always been messy. They've always been trying to figure it out just like us. There is no golden age that needs to be recaptured. I was reading a book on reconciliation efforts during the civil rights and the time after the civil rights era in the Presbyterian Church in um, southern Mississippi or in central Mississippi, and one of the things that stifled reconciliation was this golden age thinking that these people tried to capture what happened in the Reformation and the document's that came after that and say, this is who we want to be, we will never change, we're holding to this. And anyone that would come into that system from the outside was seen as a threat. And one of the people said that the Reformed faith as expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith is the purest form in which the gospel has been manifested since the days of the apostles. And he goes on to say that if one of the… that that he would have branded the apostles themselves apostates if they didn't subscribe to the Westminster Confession. That's golden age thinking. That's what Karl Barth called ecclesiastical romanticism. There's no golden age that we need to recapture. We stand on the shoulders of great mothers and great fathers, and we need to respect them and honor them and especially honor the ecumenical creeds and those things that have come before us. We honor and value tradition, but it doesn't get a veto just because it's old. And then finally, we need to be reformed by the gospel. You see, the gospel says to the conservative that you are far more lost and sinful than you could ever conceive of, and no amount of moral reform will ever be able to solve your problem. It took the death of of Jesus, the Son of God. That was what was necessary for your salvation. And to the liberals among us, it says that God is far more loving and extravagant and inclusive than you could ever conceive. He willingly gave up his son for you. You see, the gospel is both conservative. There's one true way to God, one true son, that the Bible is the actual word of God and the gospel never changes. But it's liberal in the sense that the depths of the gospel can never be fully plumbed and that mercy and love always trump justice. So, friends, each of us, we need to wrestle with this. And as we seek as a, as a church, as a body, to be reformed and reforming, to be renewed, each of us as individuals must be reformed. That is renewed by the gospel. That is captured and reborn by the gospel, reborn from your sin and your self-righteousness. And also, as we continue, whereas that may be where you're sitting this morning, for the very first time, you're opening yourself up to the reformation of the gospel and saying, maybe that's what I need. Maybe i found it here, and I hope and pray that that might be true of you. But for those of us who have been in this practice for decades and years, we can get stuck in our ways. And we need to be reformed and renewed each and every day by contemplating again and again the immensity and the enormity of God's love for you and then actively pouring that love out for others. Let that be true of each of us individually and as a family and as a community. Let's pray. Lord, through all of these big words and all of these uh, philosophical ramblings, Lord, I pray that you would use this sermon and use this text to meet us where we are, to draw us out of our selfishness, to draw us out of the ways that we seek to please you with our righteousness as well as our overt sin in which we run away from you, both as individuals and as a community. Renew us, restore us, revitalize us. Help us to be people who love the world enough to walk towards them with humility and yet with faith and with the hope of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.